Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 25th, 2016. This is episode 1750, I don't know, 1752 of the Survival Podcast. But I do know this, it is Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's time for the Monster Show of the Week. That's a Listener Council Q&A. And boy, do I have a great show for you this week. Remember to uh, to submit a question for a council member. Just send it to me uh, in an email with TSPC Expert in the subject line. Again, put TSPC Expert in the subject line. Send that to Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And then, you know, give me your question in one or two sentences maximum. And then give me all the details you feel you need to do. But if you do that, it makes it a lot more clear to the council member I'm sending it to what they're actually ask, you know, answering for you. And it just makes everything go better. Certainly makes my, uh, my screening process go better. And please tell me who the question is for. And I really prefer when you say it's for so-and-so, not so-and-so or so-and-so. Pick one. Uh, anyway, what do we got up for you today? I'm going to talk about our new show format, which I think you're going to really dig. You'll you'll actually hear it before I talk about it. Um, I'm also got uh, Michael and Sue LaPrace, uh today to talk about helping homeschoolers achieve well above average and going further than their parents did. I think that's a big goal that a lot of folks have. Uh, we are going to have uh, Jeff Lawton weigh in on how permaculture could solve the drought problem in California. What could we do? Low-tech solutions that would actually fix this problem that seems insurmountable right now, and as people pointing fingers at each other. We're going to talk about improving our odds and our ability to fight if we, if we you know, do end up with cancer. Gary Collins, uh, uh, the Primal Power Method, is going to weigh in on cancer. Ben Falk is going to talk today about the best plants and crops for a good return of your investment uh, to plan on your own property. Uh, we're going to talk about what does a well-stocked pantry really look like from a standpoint of being a great cook, cooking your own meals with Keith Snow. And John Pugliano is going to talk about the ins and outs of Series E savings bonds, specifically old Series E's that maybe your parents or grandparents bought for you when you were a kid that are sitting around and you're wondering what to do with them. And I'm going to end up the show talking to you a little bit about two more great values and shotguns out there, one that was brought to me by a listener, another one I've just discovered that I think you're going to be really interested in. Anyway, with that, let's um, gain some historical context with our segment called The Year That Was the Episode. Every episode we have a little history segment at tspwiki.com on The Year That Was. The year, of course, was 1752, because now I remember that is today's episode. I have today for you two from Alex Shrug, The First Chill Wind of Revolution. And I have the Liberty Bell is cast again and again. And a few items of note from the year. Benjamin Franklin in this year proves lightning is a form of electricity, though it's doubtful he used a kite and a key. Betsy Ross is born. Did she really make the flag? No documented proof, just a family tradition. Though I was taught that was true in school, like it was the letter, like it was the gospel, right? Um, and eye gouging this year has made a felony in Virginia. Ouch. Um, yeah, I can see why. I mean, if it's a common practice, it's a, a serious thing to lose an eye. Anyway, the first chill wind of revolution is what I'm going to read for you. The French noble, nobility admit it. It is the age of science and reason, 
an aristocracy set above the people by an agency of the divine sees ridiculous even to them. They are far too in, in, there are far too many incompetents who have inherited or bought positions rather than earned them through merit, the exception being the military rank of major and lieutenant colonel, which are merit ranks. While King Louis XV was fighting the war of Austria's succession, he left governance of France in the hands of two brothers, one of which wrote these chilling words this year. The race of great lords must be destroyed completely. René Louis de Vauher. My take by Alex Shrugged. Now you know why the French aristocrat, Alex de Tocqueville, was traveling through the United States of America in early to 1830s taking notes. He wanted to find out how France could make a safe transition from an aristocracy to a democracy. In 1835, he published Democracy in America, a book that many people quote from but few have read, so let's quote from it, no tears please. On taxes, a democratic government is the only one in which those who vote for a tax can escape the obligation to pay it. Mm -hmm. On the evils of the press, in order to enjoy the inestimable benefits that the liberty of the press ensures, It is necessary to submit to the inevitable evil that it creates. On the sheeple, in the United States, the majority undertakes to supply a multitude of ready-made opinions for the use of individuals who are thus relied from the necessity of forming opinions of their thus relieved from the necessity of opinion forming opinions of their own. On despotism, the foremost, or indeed the sole condition which is required in order to succeed in centralizing the supreme power in a democratic country, is to love equally or to get men to believe you love it. Thus the science of despotism, which was once so complex, is simplified and reduced as if it were to a single principle. On our greatness, the greatness in America lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. So for all the criticisms, that's where we end up, on the greatness of America. My take is that the greatness of America is that we have still, if we wanted to, the ability to be the greatest nation that's ever been conceived of. Our form of government, for all its flaws, if the people of this nation were actually educated and wanted liberty and freedom, could be rendered so that it would provide it. It is not the fault of the structure that we have. It is the fault of the people to form their own op opinions, to understand the power of the press rather than submit to its evils, to understand the evil of taxation and not think that it's okay as long as it affects somebody else and actually rise to the greatness that's possible. Because people say, well, Jack, you're an anarchist, or at least, at minimum, a libertarian. This nation could become a libertarian, libertarian nation under our form of government tomorrow if the people willed it so. They just don't for now. The more things change, the more they stay the same. My take by Jack Spierko. Next up, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day, and I think you'll like the new format and the way that we're going to do these now. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family, This is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey, or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey Guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21 and a dot com. 
Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. So that was well under a minute for both sponsors, and I, I want to take this this point as we transition into the main part of the show to talk about the new format of the show that I've come up with. I've, I've tried to experiment with this over the last week. If you've noticed during the intro segment, I'm a little off in my timings. I've been doing this for eight years almost now, so you get really good at doing something the same way for eight years, and I realize the show's kind of stagnated a little bit in the intro segment with the intro of new things like the history segment, Bob Wells' Plan of the Week, and the intro segment at sometimes can take as long as like 15 minutes or more to get done. And it's not just the length of the intro segment. Most of the intro segment is all like the housekeeping stuff. There's no real content. So if you notice today, when I started out, other than giving you, you know, the typical stuff, the date, the episode number, things like that, I didn't just give you the topic. The show I actually went into what it's going to be about a little bit so that when you first start the show, you actually get some content about the topic. And whether it's a standalone show or an interview show or anything like that, I'll give you a minute or two of that. And, and this is important, guys. And I, I thought about, like, just do the new format and screw it. Don't explain it, right? Because um, I think it'll work really well. And now here I am going to spend five more minutes talking about it. But a lot of you guys have been listening for seven, eight years. I'm going to change something. You guys deserve to hear about it. So what I did today is I started, I did like half of the sponsors so far. I went through and I wrote a script for their sponsor segments, and I, I, I ensured that it would be no longer than 30 seconds. I think the longest one was 26. Most of them are under 20. So in most instances, you're talking 40 seconds for both sponsor spots. So that just takes those things down to a point where uh, people are less likely to skip them. But, you know, the, guy, the guys that you've been listening for that long and you know these sponsors and you always go to them first, that's what they're paying for. So it doesn't matter if you do it. What matters is when a new listener comes here and listens for 15 minutes and like is like, geez, there's, what a, you know, when are we going to talk about this stuff? So this is basically how the new format's going to work out. Come on, high date, all that stuff. The topic discussion. So we actually tell you what we're going to be talking about and give you a little information, a starter, a teaser. And then we'll do the year that was, because I think most people see that as content. And if you don't like that, then you skip that. But I think even a new listener is like, okay, I'll, I'll give this a shot, see what this is. Then we have our sponsors, bam, 40 to, 40 to 50 seconds done, maximum, right? Then we go into the body of the show. Then I'm going to throw a little blurb for the Members Brigade at the end of shows from now on and have little closing segments, something that's additional to the show. Like today, I'm going to talk about two other great values in shotguns. It'll take me just a couple minutes to mention to you. I think you'll be interested in talk a little bit about the song of the day and end that so that everything flows. And there's no real disruption uh, because the ads in the middle weren't bad. Most people felt the ads in the middle weren't bad when it was like a show like today where you have different people and different subjects and it's always changing. But when I did it on the show on firearms or the day, the, the one on financial preparedness, that like I'm going on a topic and then boom, we just stop and then we got to come back in. Plus the ads were about 45 seconds to a minute each. So I think by doing this, we can pare down the intro segment to under 10 minutes every day. But the other thing that happens is, well, two minutes of that is actually the topic, so now we're at eight. And about four to five minutes is the year that was the episode, which is really content. So... We're down to only a minute of, of, you know, 
intro, the show number, that stuff. And I think it'll be a lot easier for new people to come on and listen to the show. Because this is what's concerning me. I've heard from somebody that go, I want to share your show. But when I do, people get there, and because they're not used to it, and they're not used to the format, they feel like they've just spent 15 minutes, and they really haven't gotten what they were excited about. So I want to kind of change that up, and, and I hope you guys will really dig this new topic. And here's what I want to do. I want to run it next week for the whole week, and I won't talk about the fact that we're doing it anymore. I'll just do it. And then I'm going to ask you guys on Friday, after a week of experiencing it, to let me know what you think about it. Now, before we take the first listener call, I want to remind you again that we do have a Work With Jack weekend coming up next Saturday, not you know tomorrow, but one week out. We have plenty of room. We're going to be serving brisket and sausage. We're going to be doing some cool stuff. We're not going to be doing that much work. We're going to hang out. We're going to do a property tour. We're going to answer your questions on design and development of your own homesteads. We'll have a lot of cool people here to hang out with. And you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and uh, checking out the post on it. I'll put a link in today's show notes so that you can uh, uh, learn more about that and register. It's 15 bucks and uh, family rates 25. All right. With that, let's get into our, uh, our first question today. Uh, our newest expert council members, Michael and Sue LaPraise, are going to answer a question today that's, it, it's an interesting one and it's, it's one I hadn't really ever thought of before. Y you know how, Parents always want their kids, especially if the kids want to, to be able to go further than themselves. Well, I think we have this misguided belief that, well, those people that run the government schools uh, can help them do that, where how could we teach our kids to go further than we went when that seems to be where we've limited ourselves to? So this person's asking kind of that question with some other components to it, and I think Michael and Sue just knock it out of the park with helping parents decide that maybe homeschooling, especially an unstructured homeschooling thing that's not just a, a repeat of the state school at home, could be the way forward and actually gives your kids a lot more opportunities to excel. Michael and Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel, answering Andy's question about some strategies of typical average homeschool parents how to teach your children to be more successful than their parents, and how to teach them that there's a better way and give them a vision for the future. Andy, I want to start off by saying that we appreciate your concern and we feel you have truly valid questions. This is not just strategic, but also philosophical. So we'd like to break this down into several pieces. We've got what is average, defining vision, what success looks like, and then a practical strategy to guide the journey. It seems like you've already started this journey with an excellent choice to listen to something different and challenging like TSP with Jack's take on living a better life. When you follow a government school or even a regular homeschooling curriculum, you're deciding to stay in the box. Standardized curriculum and the public school schedule lead to average in a way that you've been talking about. Kids can excel in these if mathematical and linguistic styles are already what they are great at. For the rest of the herd, it's a struggle to keep up, and about 30% actually give up on the system by the time they're 18. You need to know that you've decided to complicate your life when you choose not to follow society's norms. We made that choice 25 years ago, and we haven't regretted it. Last time we talked about homeschoolers being weird, and how people early on thought we were weird, but we weren't concerned about what those people thought. 
A few years ago, when we were almost done raising our kids and we adopted three more children, a woman I worked with actually came up to me and said, You are so stupid. You're 52 years old and adopting little kids. You're never going to get to retire. Six years later, I don't have enough words to describe how wrong she was. Her comments never affected me because I already knew that my life was different than most, with different goals. Our vision is for family. Now, when you talk about average and floundering, you need to ask yourself, what is success? I was a successful workaholic, 70, 80-hour work weeks at the office with long commute times, gone before the kids got up and home after they went to sleep, many years on call, which back in the day meant going into the office, think pre-cell phone, dial-up internet, but I was above average and headed for an early grave. Does that sound like success to you? This average life that Michael was living at work didn't mesh with what was going on at our house. I felt like I was living that line from the Elvis Costello song, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding? But because Michael and I were working on two different tracks, mostly because we were raised on two different tracks. Michael never moved from his inner-city triple-decker and a mill town in Massachusetts and I was raised on a variety of farms and rural gardens from Malibu to Oregon. I found a company that encourages a work-life balance. They know I'm in for 40, 45 excellent hours on an average week. I'm not climbing the corporate ladder, and they understand that not everyone wants to do that. I'm cheerful, friendly, and do a great job, and they appreciate me by way of a great check every two weeks. So success for me is defined by balancing what I do for income and what I do with my family. Andy, it's important not to think of yourself as a wage slave, but as a valuable person who's compensated for the skills you bring to the organization you work for. Being grateful is an important concept if you're going to think outside of the system. You have a choice to accept the compensation package that you agree to, or move on to something else. Be sure your mindset isn't like professional athletes that cry slavery when they're getting a multi-million dollar package. Our children, just like yours, are valuable for their uniqueness. They're each born unique. I mean, seriously unique. Individuals from the moment they're born or got to us. As a child, I was highly accepted for who I am by my mother, and I strive to do that for my children. And the best way I found to draw out that inner bent in them was to have as many adventures as possible, discover as many new things to think about, and ask so many questions for them to ask themselves about what they liked and who they wanted to become. Everyone wants to be understood and validated. So when a little person is showing you a drawing, don't be like most adults who want to be smart and say they recognize what's on the paper. Instead of saying, nice horse, as if you know what the picture's about, ask for the story. Let your child use their own words and tell you the story. If you want to understand your child or what it is they feel they have accomplished, start asking them questions like, Tell me about your picture or your project. What's going on in this awesome picture? Asking them questions like that. Let them tell you what they know instead of always hearing what you think. Learning to express oneself gives great confidence and leads to greater success in life. So, have you asked yourself the question, what is success? What is my vision for my future, the future of my children, my job, my land, and so on? Seriously, 
Take some time and write this down. Tape it to your bathroom mirror and ponder it. Talk about it with your spouse and come to a decision on what you think true success is. For us, for our children, it was helping them understand who they are and what they were designed to do. Again, spending lots of time talking with your children will help you help them. Then, providing opportunities and encouraging them to walk that out, even when it seemed hard. It has been so different for every child, and things don't always work out, so you have to teach them to come up with the next strategy when what they've planned doesn't work out. And this includes adult children. Because things don't always work out. Life is so much like a garden. We have this little apple tree in our yard that Jack gave our son Eric because it wasn't doing well in the various spots Jack had planted it. It's budding out where it is now, and your children are no different. We all want to be planted in the spot where we get the right temperature, water, and nutrients for the dream to be fulfilled. Learning how to find a vision is easy for some people, people like me, not so much for Michael, and then teaching how to follow a path, stumble, and pick yourself back up takes time and care. Quite often, that kid or young adult looking to do something amazing and different falls down and stops trying because there's no one to tell them to try again. Our culture has this mantra that goes like this, failure's not an option. The first time I saw a kid wearing that bracelet, I said, failure's not an option. It's inevitable. We all fail. And so will our children. So here's the strategy that I've used for the past 28 years. I model a strong work ethic for all of my children. They know how important doing my best is to me, and that's what my dad taught me. I've encouraged all my children to follow their passions. Either do what you love to do, or love what you choose to do. We teach our kids not to allow themselves to be judged by someone else's standard, but to set a high standard for themselves. Remember, modeling only goes so far. Your children are individuals, and they get to make their own choices, and you need to teach them to begin making choices at a very early age. We happen to model having a 72-hour bag. We share this with our seven kids and even buy little things for them to put in theirs. And five out of our seven kids followed this example, and we're still working on the other two. Some practical strategies for teaching young children to think outside the box are, number one, Don't put them in the box to start with. Keep them away from the systems and get them outside into the real world. Number two, take lots of adventures and call them adventures. Instead of giving more toys for Christmas, this last year I made up eight adventure bags that included a classic story, most of which we already owned, and tickets that I made up to an adventure that was often free. Adventure is a far better gift than something you can buy at Toys R Us. Number three, allow them to make decisions that let them succeed or fail on their own. You learn from both success and failure. Without purpose, people flounder. You need to have a clearly defined purpose for your life and teach your kids to have their own. Historically, children follow in or near their parents' footsteps because, as we all know, The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If you want something different for your kids, you have to demonstrate that by listening to different things, changing what you watch on TV and what you do with your children. 
If you're going to government school or even using a standard 36-week school-based curriculum at home, and then you're rushing from piano lessons to soccer or other things four days a week, then you're going to get the same thing everyone else is getting. Tired. Talk about different things. Go different places. Meet interesting people. And invite them into your home. And try things you don't know anything about, but you do it because your kid is interested. Things like wild caving or scuba diving, rock climbing or shooting. So to summarize all this, keep asking great questions of yourself. Choose to be different. Spend serious time casting a vision for you and your family. Do your best wherever you are, even if it's in the system. Continually evaluate your strategies. Help your children find their own uniqueness. We hope this answers your questions, Andy. Please feel free to follow up with us at halobysue.com or leave us any additional questions on the show notes. For the expert counsel, this has been Michael and Sue Laprise from halobysue.com, designing the life you'd love to live, wishing you many great adventures. Keep them coming, guys. And remember, you can meet the entire expert council by going to the survivalpodcast.com and you'll see the About tab. You can hover there and click on Meet the Expert Council. Michael and Sue are the two people that I don't have on there yet. I need to get them the format over to uh, to get me a picture and a bio for them today to get up onto that part of the site. Um, you'll also see a link to that uh, page in all the expert council shows. Uh, I guess the, the big thing that I would add is, as I was listening to this, I kept thinking about how schools judge their own success today. And they do it by test scores. That's what they really do it by. That's why they want standardized testing and all this other crap. And what they say is if our school tests in the top 90% of schools, we're a top 90% school because we're better than everybody else by that metric. And while I think in most instances homeschooled or unschooled or unstructured schooled children who work out all of this stuff with the help of their parents and with tutors and with other kids would in generally in general score a quite a bit higher than average, which would be 50% uh, on the same type of testing. I, I think what would be really interesting, really interesting is to test reading, writing, math comprehension, historical context knowledge, scientific understanding, general physics, things like that, in a test that was not administered at the end of your, you know, your 12th grade year. But five years after, five years after, both students or both groups of students have actually left their program of choice. Because this is what I know. If schools are judging their own success on how well children test, you know, by the time they're teenagers going through their four years of high school. If we were to retest those kids five years later, we would have to admit the truth. The government school system is an abject failure. Because what they're doing is trained to have enough retention to get through the test. But the practical knowledge goes to shit the minute they leave that system. Because they realize how much of it was useless. But I think if we checked general understanding, comprehension, context, scientific understanding, five years or ten years down the road, that the homeschool um, delta that's already quite high in favor of homeschool children would grow even more. 
because I don't. I, I, I all I can say is I don't really remember shit from school, and the things that I remember that would be on a test that came from school, I probably know better today because of my life experience. It certainly has very little to do with classroom time. That's my thoughts. Next question I have is for uh, Jeff Lawton. This is a question on. This is a big question. Like, if permaculture is as awesome as we say it is, and can fix environmental problems, and can design better systems for either an individual or a group or a town or a community, could we do it for a state? Could we do it for a whole state? One of the biggest environmental crises that we're dealing with right now in the United States is the drought in California. And all we get out of that is people pointing fingers at each other, blaming each other. The dairy industry uses too much water. The almond industry uses too much water. It's the Delta smelt's fault. Why won't? But no one's actually talked about, instead of just rationing what water's available, while they're sucking massive amounts of water from Lake Mead thousands of miles away, how would you actually fix the problem? So that was a question for Jeff Lawton, probably the most astute permaculture designer in the world today. Jeff, how would you fix the drought problems in California? Can it be done? Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And my first question is from Jason from Texas. And um, it's about um, the drought problems in California. And how would permaculture fix the drought problems? Well, what we'd have to do is we'd have to repattern the landscape so it became more absorbent of water and slow the passage of water in the landscape instead of at surface drainage speed rates where you have the fastest route to the ocean with the um, least speed and least friction. We'd have to slow the passage of water down so that it takes the longest path over the most time, over the most distance, with the maximum friction running up against as many things along the way, which actually slows down its erosive inertia and silt load so that uh, it becomes a deposition system en masse across the state. Um, This involves uh, starting most sensibly starting at the headwaters and um, using uh, techniques like gabions um, to slow down the water and build up silt fields which become very soaky um, absorption beds where the water is away from the sun in the soft silt beds behind the gabion walls Um, and then as you come downhill flooding those out into um, the floodplains with soaky swales which are water harvesting ditches on on contour that uh, stop, spread and soak water into tree lines. They're tree-growing systems mainly, and the trees increase their function by reducing the evaporation of the sun with shade, uh, reducing the evaporation of the sun with wind, and also increasing the organic matter content, plus adding extra to the precipitation figure on top of the rainfall by up to 80% increase of precipitation with condensation. The condensation drip is always discounted. Um, Small ponds coming down to quite large ponds, what we call in Australia dams, but you call those dams are usually huge in the American terminology. We're talking about ponds, uh, starting small, coming to larger, shaded where possible, 
because you're in quite a hot climate. Uh, California is quite deserty out in the inland, but uh, Mediterranean, hot Mediterranean towards the coast. You do need to shade bodies of water if they're open. Um, and then the cycling of um, grazing systems between these contour swell lines um, so that you get good um, um, rangeland management type cell grazing systems with the right cycles um, in between um, the periods of the year when you can change the speed and area and concentration of animals through the landscape it has to be done very thoughtfully but can actually increase the fertility considerably um, it may need uh, probably will need starting off with some soil conditioning uh, with uh, contour deep ripping um, then there can be uh, appropriate tree planting appropriate crop systems in the right scale of application between the contoured tree lines um, out through the landscape. As we get down into the bottom land, some of those swales can be quite massive and huge. Um, and all runoff from roads can aim towards um, water rehydration systems, mainly through swales. Uh, but also, if there's any toxic runoff from roads or hardware or industry, they can all be cleaned up biologically with biological um, cleaning systems. Um, they're all well understood today. All these components are available. You just need agreement on a holistic plan. We can start at a top catchment and, and prove this on our way down quite quickly. So if the Californian government want to give us a, a selection of watershed, it really wouldn't take very long to prove these issues. We're even getting results in areas like um, Saudi Arabia, um, which is... Um, quite ironic to use Saudi Arabia as an example for California, but there you go. Um, with um, less than three inches of rain a year um, and extreme temperatures, we're, we're, we're getting a result on our projects there even. Um, so it shouldn't be a problem whatsoever. You just need an agreement um, and that um, this is um, holistic design planning over a broad catchment area. And um, I can imagine... California being hyper-hydrated, actually, um, with all the rivers and all the streams flowing, and um, uh, more or less a green green state instead of a brown one. Um, it's reasonably simple, and I'm sorry to be quite cynical about this, but I don't think uh, there's any problem with getting this done whatsoever. And um, But it does mean getting past the legislators and the people who want to procrastinate for whatever reason, whether it's their own gain or not, I don't know. I don't really care. It's uh, it's not about individual techniques. It's about combinations of designed events that actually get a result of rehydration, which facilitates a completely creative and abundant environment. That then, that then, and only then can we actually turn into a profitable environment. We can recharge the aquifers more than we use them quite easily. And we can make all the streams and rivers flow very, very easily as well. But it is a matter of design and then the application of design across the area. And we can go catchment by catchment. And there's plenty of well-trained people in California and America at large that can do this without any need of anyone flying in from another country. Um, that's just not needed today. There's plenty of plain train people on the ground over there. All right. Thanks, guys. Great talking to you.
You know, I want to throw in a little bit of, yeah, I've seen the results uh, type of uh, edition here. And Jeff mentions Saudi Arabia. So there's a gentleman named Neil Spackman that I saw speak at Permaculture Voices 3. And he is the guy that is working on this research site in the Saudi desert. He's in a place where they get one to two inches of rainfall a year. One to two inches in the Saudi desert. And in just a few years, they are literally regreening even that desert. Now, this is on a fairly large scale. It's using a lot of catchment to regreen a smaller piece. But if you compare that to California, California is easy compared to, to that. And California is not all 10 inches of 10 to 12 inches of rainfall. There's parts of California that get significantly more rainfall than that. And by taking a holistic approach to the whole thing, I absolutely believe these problems could be solved. And the amount of waste at the urban level is disgusting. The truth is the government of California should not be allowed to bitch about drought and water usage because they're doing the absolute worst job they could possibly be doing at managing the water resource that's gifted to them from the sky that they throw away into the ocean. It is disgraceful. And it is up to the people of California to realize this and stop thinking that driving a Prius and using a cloth shopping bag is going to fix this problem. There's a mechanical engineering way to fix this problem. It is doable, but... Jeff mentioned being cynical. I'm cynical that anybody in enough numbers is ready to start addressing this problem yet. Because the big thing is that total solution, while a central authority can aid its implementation, it decentralizes the resource and puts them into the hands of the people that actually use the resource. Which means it takes power away from authority, so it does them no good to address this this way. Until people that are in positions of power, see themselves as what they're supposed to be. Servants. Servants. Stop referring to the people at your state house, the federal house, federal government, etc., as your leaders. They are not your leaders. They are supposed to be your servants. And until such time as you realize that, you can't actually have a leader in your own life. Because the leader in your life that you have to first have, if you'd like to see who it is, go find a mirror and take a look. So we can't fix California, but we can fix the land that we control, that we steward. That's my thoughts on this one. Next up, totally different situation. You know, there is a, a disease that takes the lives of, 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 when you total up all the different versions of it, millions of people every year, it's called cancer. And, and we have a feeling that we look at cancer and go, there is like the luck of the draw thing, like, damn it, that guy got cancer, and it was terminal, and it was a rare form, it was hard to fight. He lost the fight, and there was nothing he could do. And I, I believe that genetic predisposition and things like that, there are people that draw that card. But I also believe there are things that we can do to mitigate our chances of getting cancer or to live healthy lifestyles where if we do end up with a cancer, we can reduce the odds of losing the battle. And on that, I have a question about those things for Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. Gary, what say you on either cancer mitigation or prevention? Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And today we have a question regarding, is there a way to lower your risk of getting cancer? Chris says he has heard, or she, I don't know, uh, that 
you hear a lot about how diet and exercise can help against other diseases, chronic diseases we have in America today, such as diabetes, obesity, heart disease, but you never hear about how, if you can do anything to reduce your chances of getting cancer. That's an excellent question. Number, cancer is a number two killer in the United States. It's number one is heart disease and they are interrelated because they are due to chronic stress or oxidative stress. So if you reduce one, you're going to reduce the other. That's the best way I can put it. Now, I think we need to understand first what, what is cancer? Cancer is basically the, is basically the proliferation of broken cells. When our cells divide, if they become damaged during this process, what happens is we have – they continue to divide, and instead of fixing themselves or being able to correct the errors usually found in the nucleus or mitochondria, that they continue to – and our body has loses the ability to turn them off. They basically continue to divide, divide, divide. That's where you get these tumors. They are caused by a great deal of oxidative stress. Uh, free radicals. We've talked about this, the chronic inflammation, um, the nuclear DNA damage of the cell. It, 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 we lose our ability, again, to control or repair those cells. That's why it can be very specific to certain organs, you know, liver cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer. There are numerous factors that can contribute, but I want you to understand that we are all born with the gene or multiple genes, I should say, for cancer. This is programmed into the human body. That's why, you know, Chris also talks about how perfectly normal people all of a sudden get stricken with cancer. There's no 100% way to say or help you and say, you're not going to get cancer. If you do X, Y will not be the result. I cannot say that. We all have the genetic makeup for cancer. We do. Now, that doesn't mean we're all going to get it. Far from it. But it can be genetic. Certain, I, I know certain families that they, they're highly, uh, predisposed to get certain types of cancer, breast cancer, liver cancer. You know, it runs in their family. Well, that doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to get it just because it's in your family. It just means that you have a higher propensity to get it than maybe me. But it can be, again, specific. There's multiple different types of cancer. And also I want to talk about how the drug companies say it's just a matter of time before we find a cure for cancer. I don't buy that for a second. Um, unfortunately, I had to work with these guys and be around them. The cancer industry is huge. Uh, when you start getting into chemotherapy drugs and all the experimental drugs, we are talking huge money. I remember vials of chemotherapy or, uh, that they would use during uh, chemotherapy oncologists would use when I was at the FDA. They were cost, they would cost $5,000 and you cannot reuse it. Once you pierce it with a needle and you break that, that's it. Five grand. Big business. Yeah, and I've always talked about it is big business to keep us unhealthy. If we you know, got our act together and took control of our health, which I talk about on the survivalist prepper and self-reliance side, that's the first key. You have to get healthy. You have to take control of your health before you can start down the path to freedom. Just the way it is. Health is the key to everything we do in life. It all starts there. So 
to understand that it's big business and they talk about this. And I want to talk about, well, how, how in the world can you cure cancer? You can't. And here's what, why I think this. And uh, this is my opinion and what I believe. And I think it's based on reality. Cancer is primarily based upon oxidative stresses or chronic inflammation. So how would you cure that? You can't cure that. That's natural. Uh, you know, far as having, you know, inflammation, inflammation is part of your body healing itself. Chronic inflammation is the negative consequence where we are not, we go past that and we're just in a chronic state of inflammation and we're not healing. We can't keep up with the constant breakdown. That is by many factors. Well, in order for you to cure cancer, you would have to stop all inflammation. You would have to find the gene or genes, multiple genes responsible that trigger turn on cancer. And you would have to also cure or come up with the ability to find how to make us live forever. Because once you eliminate chronic inflammation in the inflammation process or keep it just to rebuilding uh, inflammation, I, which I don't see how that would even work, I don't understand. There's no cure for cancer. And if you were able to eradicate it through your body in that type of cancer, well, you would still be susceptible to other types of cancer. So I just want to have a little base in reality on that. Sorry to get on on a, a tangent or a side note. Let's start with uh, where I believe the primary avenue that you should look at when trying to reduce your chance of getting cancer. Cancer cells have the, they they only can live or, or, or reproduce and proliferate when sugar is present. So I think you guys know where I'm going with this one. I have talked to numerous people who have written books on cancer. I've done research myself. And the number I keep coming up with and seeing and people tell me is they believe 50% of all cancer can be directly related to the overconsumption of refined sugar. 50%. That's a lot. That's a pretty daunting number, but it makes sense because what is sugar? It is highly oxidative. It causes a lot of free radicals in the body, cellular damage. Starting to see where we're going with this. So they have found that if you eat a diet low in sugar with the proper amounts of fats and protein, well, guess what? It's going to reduce your propensity to get cancer. And they have also used the ketogenic diet, which is a high fat diet, because cancer cannot use fat in order to reproduce into continuing the cellular division. Can't do it. Cancer cannot survive off fat. It cannot utilize it as an energy source. So the first one, obviously, avoid consuming refined sugar and products that contain high fructose corn syrup. Pretty basic stuff, guys. This is, you know, my thing about sugar. I believe sugar is the primary culprit or overconsumption of sugar on all diseases that we suffer from today. Reduce your consumption of sugar. And I guarantee everything else, everything changes. That's where it starts. That's why I talk about insulin so much in my book. Insulin regulates blood sugar. So with that, though, well, let's talk about an average consumption of sugar a day should be eight teaspoons or less. We're consuming today 40 to 50 teaspoons for the average person in the United States today. That eight teaspoons includes all the sugar contained in natural sugars contained in your food. That's not adding your sweet white sugar on top of what you're already eating. 
eight teaspoons or less a day. Now, what most people do is they go, well, okay, I'm going to replace that with artificial sweeteners. Artificial sweeteners, after study after study, have been proven that they are carcinogenic, which means they cause cancer. They, clot, they cross the blood-brain barrier and cause a whole host of other health issues, Alzheimer's, brain tumors, uh, you know, uh, chronic headaches, migraines. So, no, do not consume artificial sweeteners, period. You should not be using those at all. And also they have proven that people who consume a lot of artificial sweeteners don't lose weight. They actually gain it because it tricks your brain into thinking you're getting something sweet without the sugar, which makes you crave more and more and more sweet things. All right. The next one, exercise regularly. Exercise helps to control your insulin levels by you because you're burning, obviously, blood sugar in order to exercise. That's part of the energy cycle. So and not only that, but exercise helps get oxygen to the brain. Very important. Also moves all the nutrients around in our blood. So if you sit around and eat crap all day, basically all that stuff does is sit. You want to move. You want to get this stuff burning, and you shouldn't be eating that crap anyway. But eat real food. Pretty basic, guys. I talk about this in all my books, about how to eat real food, what is real food today. I know it's there's a blurry line because the food industry is massive, and everything they make is healthy, according to them. Cheetos are healthy, according to the food industry anymore. So make sure to eat real food. Next one, intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting, we've talked about, actually talked about this in the last episode, and I've talked about it several times. During the fasting process, where you're not eating any food, especially in the form of what we eat today as Americans, which is a lot of processed sugar and crap, that your body during fasting mode goes into repair mode. So what it will actually do, your body will go into scavenger mode and start going and looking for those broken cells. Those broken cells eventually can become cancer cells. So what it'll do is it'll go, and if it can't fix those cells, it will basically break them apart, be absorbed back into the body or excre you know, excreted through our urine, feces. Fasting is an incredibly powerful health tool for us. So intermittent fasting. The next and last is one that me and Jack have talked about, I know Jack takes it, is taking the supplement turmeric. I have taken and sold this supplement for years. It is my number one favorite supplement. And you guys know me. I'm not a touter of saying there's any miracle anything out there in the, su in the supplement industry because we all hear it. Uh, just listen to Dr. Oz. Every show, he's found the magic supplement that he gets sued for and does not work. Turmeric is a spice. Very adaptogen, adaptogenic, which means it can, it works in a multitude uh, of, of pathways throughout your body. But two of the ones we're concerned with with cancer is chronic inflammation and insulin regulation, blood sugar regulation. That is where it works when we're talking about cancer, free radicals. So those are the one, those, if keep it basic and simple, and these are the most effective of all the things you can do to reduce your chances for cancer. Again, I repeat, there is no cure for cancer. There is no way you can 100% avoid it, but you can greatly reduce your chances by following the, these very simple steps and, and, and making, and making the proper food choices and exercise regularly. I hope this helps and uh, make sure if you have any questions, hit me at contact at primal power method or just uh, put in a response at the end of the show notes. Thanks. 
Great stuff in, I mean, who all on the turmeric? It's something that Dorothy and I take daily, and we have for a long time. And we, we really didn't start taking it for a lot of the other things that it does. It's an adaptogenic and, and what have you. It's kind of side effect. We, we took it because we were older people that work really hard, and we were achy. And that comes from inflammation, and turmeric does a good job of reducing that inflammation. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's one of my go-to things that I use as an herbal. And we, I cook with it, too. And it's a, a, a great, uh, almost a wonder plant, as far as I'm concerned, and what it can do for you in asking so little in return. But I'm also with uh, Gary that there's no super supplement that will save the day for you. There's no guarantees. And uh, I, I'm not big on hype. And I'm, I'm glad Gary's not. None of my other partners that we work with on any of these things are either. Because when I find someone that's big on hype, they, they, they don't get to be here very long. They get to go away. Some of you have seen that happen in the past. It always happens quietly, but it's like, where'd that person go? They're gone now, and they're not coming back. Anyway, uh, moving on, one of the things Gary's saying is to eat as naturally as we can. Eat real food. Well, one of the ways we do that is to grow and produce our own food. So the question I have for uh, Ben Falk today, given that he gets so much food off his own property, is what crops or animal products on your property do you feel give you the greatest return for the least amount of daily effort, Ben, what say you on this one? Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk calling with Whole Systems Design. Um, about the crops that, or animal products on my property that give me greatest return for the least amount of effort. Um, that's a tricky question in some ways. I mean, some things jump to, you know, the forefront, you know, right off, off the top of my head, like potatoes, you know, um, get a ton of food value for the amount of work and they're really easy to propagate really easy to reproduce um so potatoes are you know really hard to not want to grow uh here in this climate and you know cold climates the world over potatoes are just so valuable i think for that reason um huge yield per acre as well um and pretty light on the soil all in all um really robust um Otherwise, squash, cabbage, although cabbage does have a, a pest for us, we have the cabbage moth, whereas potatoes for us are really very pest-free, which is in contrast, I think, to potatoes for a lot of other people. We've only seen the Colorado potato beetle one year, the first year, actually last year, in, you know, 12 years of growing them. Um, otherwise... Some other things are, of course, you probably may have guessed if you follow my work at all, is Seaberry. Um, it just produces every single year. Um, someone the other day was like, well, have you ever had it not produce? And I just kind of chuckled. I was like, if Seaberry just didn't produce one year, at this point I'd be like, whoa, you know, the world must be uh, ending or something because, I mean, it, we've only grown it. You know, we've grown it for eight, eight or nine years now, but um, every year since it got mature, it's just produces flowers puts on fruit totally hardy um so that's super reliable nitrogen fixer doesn't take any you know no care once it's really established um we you, it it can help it to, to do some pruning and things like that but it really doesn't need anything pest free birds don't eat it great you know kind of food medicine um Let's see what else. I mean, we get a lot of other fruits, but they're 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 more work. Um, pears are coming into their own here as as not much work um, for the effort 
same with honeyberries and same with hardy kiwis. Um, though they take a little while to yield. Black walnuts are starting to come into their own here, um, and I'm sure a lot of the nuts will be the same. Hazelnuts are really reliable, but the, they're pretty hard to keep away from the rodents because they're so small. Um, let's see. I mean, most of the animal products, I, I think they're you know a great return, but they are a lot of work. Although I'd say duck eggs or goose eggs are probably uh, top of the list. Um, not that much work for, you know, pretty reliable return and, and valuable return. Uh, chickens, not as much, because chickens are more work for us. They just, they've, they're more agile. They get over the fencing, and they just they dig up our gardens, and, and we like to free-range our animals. I'm not a fan of, like, fencing animals in our context at all, so we let them all just walk around and do their work all day. Um and ducks and geese are just, they're more sedentary, so they don't get into the areas that we don't want them. And they also don't scratch like chickens. Chickens see a bare vegetable, you know, bare garden soil in the vegetable beds, and they want to get in there and start scratching it up. So they're much more of a pain. And they can get at any of the foam that's, I mean, our, we don't have foam all over, but there's little pieces of foam in different buildings here and there. And they're not always all covered up, and they love foam. All, all birds do, it seems, but they can really get at it very easily, it seems, compared to the other birds because they're more agile. So that's, uh, I'd say, a pretty good rundown of uh, uh, what's best return on investment for our crops. Thanks a lot. I would uh, certainly agree with everything there with a couple additions. One, um, I have to say for me, the easiest yield we've ever had with the absolute least amount of work we could ever have done so far on this property, and this is a tough property, it does require irrigation in the summer, but it's Jerusalem artichokes. I mean, it's literally, you stick a couple tubers in the ground, and when you want them after they die back, you pull them up. You, you hose them off, and you put them in a bag with a piece of paper towel, and you put them in the refrigerator, and they last for months like that. And in our cool climate time of year... You can just leave a lot of them in the ground and harvest them as you need them. And then, you know, right about like a week ago would be the time that you would want to pull them up, whatever's left in surplus, because you want to get them up before they start sprouting and you get them back into the cold. And so you, you don't even really have to store them. So, I mean, that would be one I would add. And in the South, we have, a like he mentioned, diseases with potatoes. We have, I, I've given up. I know people here that do grow potatoes, but I don't have a, I don't have a, patience for it um but sweet potato here is a fantastic crop uh once you get your vines growing you can just bury and re-root them and you can take a couple slips and you can cover huge beds with sweet potato and then toward the end of the season you just stress them by basically not watering them as much and they set tubers and you get huge yields on those and they store very well and you only need to keep a couple to next season and you can make all the slips you want And they seem to be almost no work. And the other thing with those are, most people don't realize that sweet potato greens are a fantastic green. I grow Japanese purple sweet potato. And it's a fantastic green, both chopped into a salad and sautéed and stir-fries and things like that. And I, I got to say, that's almost no work. We do have to keep any place we grow sweet potato, it has to be in a fenced area because the ducks will eat it. On the ducks, we do quite a bit of work with the ducks because of the quantity of ducks and the quantity of eggs. And Dorothy spends every morning, you know, maybe 45 minutes washing eggs. But that's because we're we're growing them in small uh, commercial quantities. Um, from a standpoint of a, a, an egg yield, 
if all we had was a dozen ducks and all we were doing is picking eggs for ourselves and our dogs, I mean, it would be, you know, one container of food a day, you open a fence, you let them do their thing, they take care of themselves, you make sure they have water, it would be one, even without a pond, you know, the men's got ponds, even without ponds, it'd be, you know, a dozen ducks, you one kiddie pool a day. I mean, it, it would it would literally be five minutes of work a day for an incredible quality uh, uh, product. So I, I, I definitely second that with ducks and geese. And um, geese, if you have geese that are reproducing, incredibly easy meat yield. 11 weeks, they're old enough to slaughter. Um, on grass, especially if you have the right property. Chickens, I know a lot of you guys love your chickens. I understand why. I had a lot of fun with our chickens, but they're just, frankly, unless you have really set up to control them, they're a pain in the ass. And uh, I, I just see the duck as a – not only do I get a same number of eggs per year per bird with less work, I have a product that nutritionally is more dense than a chicken egg in almost every way you can measure it. If you look at the comparison, you'll see what I mean. That's why I've so fallen in love with ducks. On eating and cooking, though, uh, we have Chef Keith Snow on the, on the air all the time with us, and he always talks about a well-stocked pantry, and that's what this question's about. This question comes in from DA in Missouri, and it says, What is your idea of a well-stocked pantry, and what do you think pantry essentials should be? Thanks for all your cooking expertise. Uh, so, uh, Keith, what exactly do you mean when you're rattling off this term, well-stocked pantry all the time? Hey, Chef Keith Snow. I wanted to answer DA's question about what to keep in the pantry. Now, wouldn't that be great, folks, if I could just come on the air here and tell you what to keep in your pantry? Life would be so simple, wouldn't it? Well, DA, here's the deal. A pantry is a very personal thing. Um, now, of course, there's plenty of items in the pantry that have what I would call crossover to different cuisines, dietary styles, uh, stages of life, i.e. children, or if you're um, a little older, everybody eats some of the same foods. But the pantry itself uh, is really not a one-size-fits-all situation. A good example in our house is we like to um, eat Thai food. Um, and Southeast Asian food of, of other types as well. So therefore, in my pantry, there are a multitude of items that I keep stocked. And things like gluten-free soy sauce, um, sweet chili sauce, fish sauce, sesame oil, rice wine vinegar, uh, tamarind paste, uh, what else? Um, Pepper sauces of all types, fermented pepper sauce I make and keep in my pantry, um, all types of things. There's a zillion uh, little items, jasmine rice, um, things that are specific to that style of cooking I keep in the pantry. Uh, I also keep quite a few things that would help with Italian-style meals, um, Mexican-style meals, um, also you know, of dietary concern would be low-carb foods, things like nuts and seeds. Keep quite a bit of that. Parmesan cheese crackers that have zero carbs. Um, and then I also think that the pantry, I mean, that's a, it's a word where people automatically think of, you know, a closet with food in it. A pantry, to me, is um, more than that. It can be things in the refrigerator, in the cabinet, and then also you have long-term storable food. You guys out there like to be prepared, as do I. And when you're thinking of that, that brings up a whole different subject that's sort of pantry-related. And 
you know, when you're talking about the long-term storage pantry, a lot of the foods that keep well may not be things, you know, for instance, I try to avoid carbs. Um, I love carbs. Believe me, I love pancakes and I make a lot of sourdough bread at the house. Um, I love beans, rice, things with a lot of carbs I love. Potato chips. I mean, boy, do I love crispy, salty potato chips. But none of those foods really like me. And uh, after a solid eight weeks on a ketogenic diet and then slowly adding foods back in, I can see which things bother me. And many of the symptoms I've had throughout the years have uh, strictly been dietary in nature. And it's only when you're off of these foods, I mean, super strict with no cheating for, in my case, two months that I was able to, you know, feel normal again. So when you're thinking about the long-term storable pantry, in my case, you know, what could I store that's going to last 10, 15, 20 years? That's not carbohydrate-based. Yeah, maybe some beef jerky, um, some nuts, but they don't, they don't make it 15 years. So when you're talking about the long-term storable pantry, the dietary aspect of it, in my opinion, has to go out the window. Because if you ever had to dig into that pantry, I mean, you're going to want things that go a long way, that are inexpensive, and can, you know, see you through for six months or three months or three weeks or a year, whatever it might be. That's the purpose of that pantry. Um, but the regular pantry, um, canned foods. Do you have canned foods in your pantry? I think canned foods are excellent. Certain canned foods. Do I like canned vegetables? Not really. Um, do I eat them? Very, very rarely. But I like canned tomatoes. I like canned beans. Um, I keep tomato sauce, both in the in the pouches that we make at Thoughtful Harvest, but I also keep some that's canned in jars. We can tomatoes and put those in our pantry, green beans. Um, we keep baking items in the pantry, flours of all types, gluten-free flour, coconut flour, bread flour, all-purpose flour, whole wheat flour, semolina flour, and a couple others, rye flour, um, almond meal, Almond flour. I mean, there's a lot of things in the baking area. Then there's also things that the kids love, you know, some snack bars, um, granola bars, all sorts of things. And then a lot of one-off items, different sauces that we keep duplicates of, um, jams, uh, all types of beans, every type of bean you can think of. Um, and then things like roasted seaweed that my son eats. So the pantry that we have is very specific to us. And this is the idea that I want to communicate here is there are a lot of things to take into consideration with the pantry, your stage in life, whether or not you have kids, what dietary concerns are there, what ethnic foods do you like or dislike? Do you like baking at all? Do you have time to cook at all? What is the purpose of the pantry? Now, one of the skills that I think all preppers should have, and when, you know, when Jack talks about um, harvest eating, he says, you know, that I can help you develop life skills, cooking, and this is absolutely true. And particularly, Jack did a show recently on saving money and getting out of debt. Um, I know people that are very close to me that um, I don't know how much debt they have, but I know they're not; they're always broke. And they eat out constantly, and it's the worst crap food. Therefore, the kids are sick more often. The parents are sick more often. Their uh, schedules uh, are not kept properly because, oh, we have nothing to eat. Let me run out. You know, So 7.30 at night, you've got kids that are 
eight years old that haven't had dinner at night. This is happening all the time. So learning to cook is a critical life skill um, in so many ways. I mean, I could spend the entire time that I have talking about the benefits of cooking, not only to your health, but also to your your pocketbook, your um, convenience, your schedule. Learning to cook is really important. And it's very difficult to cook when you don't have food in your pantry. And people... I don't know how, but people overlook this. Like the people I just gave in the example before have been in their pantry and, uh, there's nothing in it. You know, some stale oats, um, you know, a couple of two year old boxes of old El Paso taco shells, maybe some sugar, Aunt Jemima baking mix, um, just an assortment of things that together, I mean, you'd be hard pressed to come up with a meal. There's no, rhyme or reason to the pantry. And you have to think of a pantry just like a business. Now, I'll come up with a business. You you run a small auto repair shop. Um, Of course, you're going to need a selection of wrenches. You're going to need pans to drain oil into. You're going to need those scooter things that you slide under the car. Um, what else? Do, what else? The mechanics. A light, right? Everybody has a light that they hang in there and look down. You've got a magnet in case you drop a screw. So, all kinds of wrenches, screwdrivers, testing equipment. That's your equipment, and then you know some of your pantry items, so to speak: uh, oil, lubes, grease. Um, what else? Uh, transmission fluid, radiator fluid. You get the idea. Uh, th- this auto repair shop needs tools. And then they also need regular supplies. And you have to think about that in your house. Um, you, only you know the type of foods that you need to eat and want to eat. And once you build a pantry, um, that can help you accomplish the type of cooking style that you're after, then it needs to be maintained. And this is where it's a bit of a bugger and people that aren't um, organized in their life struggle with this. And this leads to um, poor eating habits, poor schedule, running to the store, eating out. And folks, um, my wife's birthday was recently, and we, we took her out to breakfast, just three of us, because two of the kids were in school. It's $30 to eat breakfast. Now, $30. Think about how many dozens of eggs and you know flour and whatever else we eat for breakfast we could have bought for that. And that's just three people uh, for a breakfast, where the food prices aren't very high here. You know, if you're in a city and, you know, your family goes out to dinner, I mean, it's a lot of money. And that is something to keep in mind. And this is where your properly stocked pantry helps you avoid all these types of issues. And you need to figure out what needs to be in there. And then you have to come up with a system. And and you want to talk about simple. My mother-in-law, she's a very efficient, older German lady, right in her... um kitchen she's got this little thing it's it's basically a roll of receipt paper and it hangs uh, against the cabinet in a little uh, device and it allows her to pull down the receipt and then it's held in place and she can write and pull out and write and then rip it right off and then go to the store with the list many of you probably use grocery apps on your phone i mean i do that occasionally too but honestly i'm just more of a list guy but the point is um in the commercial kitchen you know, first in, first out, eat the food that you store, you know, rotate, all that kind of stuff's important, but making sure you have it's important. You don't want to reach like the other day, I poured out the last few drops of my specific to my lifestyle soy sauce. That's the gluten-free kind. And of course, uh, up in the cabinet behind it are two more bottles. 
So I've, I have it now. I've got it in uh, in duplicate before I had it in triplicate. So when that um, the bottle that I open when that gets down to about quarter, I'll put it on the list. What, what do you prepper guys like to say? Two is two is one, and one is none. Um, there's nothing worse than running out. So it takes a little discipline to maintain that pantry. But also when you move, and we've done you know quite a bit of moving in the last decade. A lot of the food can't go with you. And the point I want to illustrate here is the cost. When you, if you run a cook's household like we do, if you're people, you know, I know Jack likes to cook a lot. If Jack were to move to another house, not take any of the food with him or not take any of the perishable food and had to restock his life, so to speak, to cook, it can be very expensive with all these items. I mean, we literally keep probably, I would say over 200 items in our pantry. And that's everything from spices to sugar, baking, all these sauces and stuff, pastas, the things that I've talked about. It takes a lot of money to initially build up that pantry. But once you have it, you're just adding to it as things run out and you maintain it. And believe me, it's a very comforting feeling. And some of you are going to really understand this and others this is going to mean nothing to you. But I don't need to leave the house for days and I know that I can... Um, keep my family in really high quality meals because we have a very deep pantry. Now, eventually, of course, you're going to run out of fresh foods, you know, like we have lettuce growing right now, but it's not, uh, we just cut it and ate it. So we're waiting for it to grow back. And then we've got others in different stages of harvest. So, you know, if we were here for, for three days, we'd be out of lettuce. So we need to go back, but there is some res- resiliency. If we were here for 48 hours, like, I don't know, two months ago when we had the, the one little storm that we had here, um, you lose power around here pretty frequently. We didn't need to run to the store like a lunatic, like everybody else. I mean, I drove by the store the day before the storm. You never saw so many, you know, unprepared people in there buying whatever the heck they buy. But when you maintain a pantry and it's filled with the things that are, again, for your stage in life, for your dietary uh, situation, for the foods you like to eat, for the style of ethnic cuisine or regular cuisine you like to cook, when all those items are in there tucked away and you have a system of rotation using them up, they're properly stored. When they run out, they go on the list or they never should run out. But when they get low, they go on the list. Once you get into this habit and this mindset, your cooking becomes a lot better and a lot more stress-free. Now, I don't think I can add anything more to that. It's been a, a long, um, long answer. And Jack, uh, thanks for being gracious on the time. And uh, I wanted to let everybody know with, with the weather starting to warm up now, those of you that love to grill, you probably want to check out my seasonings at amazon.com. Just search for harvest eating spices. And we have them all now in three ounce sizes. A lot of you just didn't want to buy those big packages that we have, but now they're in uh, resealable, really cool packages, three ounces. Check them out at Amazon, and they are on sale right now, I think until the end uh, or the middle of April. So go check those out. I appreciate everybody's support of my show over at Harvest Eating and also of this show. Jack, thanks so much for what you do. Stock that pantry, DA. Later. So something Keith keyed in on that I kind of want to point out as a way to stretch your pantry, especially with long-term storable stuff that lets you cook fabulous foods, is to get into more and more of the ethnic cooking. Um, there's a couple shows that I've really enjoyed watching. One is called Korean Food Made Easy, and the uh, chef on that is a lady named Judy Ju. Judy's 
Interesting. She's one of those people that's almost too happy all the time. It's a little bit for me anyway. One of those people that's like, they're like perky like a pop tart or something. But, and some of the stuff she cooks I have no interest in because it's like desserts and confections and stuff. And I just, I, I DVR this stuff and I fast forward through that crap. But really like learning about things like goji john and things like that, which is a, a fermented, uh, Korean hot sauce, a chili paste. It, it's really cool. And, and then so you learn about how to use that. Another show I like with an Asian flair, I don't think they make it anymore. They only made two seasons of it. I wish they would uh, to make more of it. There might have been two seasons and then a second one. There was Luke, the guy's name Luke Wynn, and he's out of Australia, but he did a show called Luke's Vietnam. And I think there was two seasons of Luke's Vietnam, and then there was one called Luke Nguyen's uh, Greater Mekong. And those were fantastic. He did, now he's doing Luke's France, and... I'm just not as into French cuisines as I am into these other things. But those shows and shows like that, um, you know, I watch people like Guy, Guy Fieri and Bobby Flay and stuff like that as well because I like to cook. And a lot of times it's like, okay, you're cooking something that anybody could cook and I don't care. Or you're cooking something that I don't want and I'd fast forward or skip. But a lot of times they're doing things using spices and seasonings and herbs. And you take that knowledge that you gain from watching these. And there's a lot of great YouTube channels out there as well. Certainly Keith Snow's YouTube channel is awesome. And you learn these techniques and you learn about these ingredients. And then one of the things you can do to kind of broaden what you're doing is take a stroll through like an Asian grocery store, a Filipino grocery store, these ethnic grocery stores, a Hispanic grocery store, and see what's there. And if you see something you've never seen before, go learn about it, learn what it is. And you may find that you don't always have to go back to these stores if they're inconvenient. Because where I live, there's like, it's a it's a pain in the ass to go to any of them. They're around, but they're not right here, right? I live in kind of like Redneck Hickville. <laughs> it's not a big thing around here, but just down into Fort Worth and, and what have you, there's a lot more stuff like that. On the Dallas side, North Dallas side, there's tons of stuff like that. But once you know about it, you might find a lot of it sitting on Amazon Prime. Like certain things I use that are unique I, I, that I wouldn't use if I didn't kind of take this path, things like fish sauce. Good fish sauce. And again, goji john, which is the Korean fermented chili paste. Things like that. Like, if you don't know they exist, you don't even know to have them. Uh, and then learning what, what not to buy. Like the, the, the five spice blend. There's good five spice blend and there's crap that they sell on your Kroger grocery store. You need to kind of learn about these different ethnic methods. And then what happens is the same food, you have the ability to do a lot of different things with it. You know, I can take chicken and, and make it good and smoky on the grill, or I can take chicken and light it up with some heat and blend it with some stir-fried vegetables and, and, and not just be like, let's dump soy sauce on it, a little bit of honey, and call it teriyaki, or, you know, worse yet, get the Kinko Man teriyaki garlic blend and just drench it in it to taste like a salt brick, to actually know how to do these things. Fresh garlic, fresh ginger, fresh Fresno chilies, uh, and then these other ingredients. And here's why... I send you down the rabbit hole of ethnic cooking. In America, we've gotten very big on, like, just straight food, right? Like, we just kind of, like, we have everything. You buy it, you put it in the freezer. Everybody has a freezer. Everybody has a refrigerator, right? Everybody has air conditioning. And, most, and everybody goes to the store. And most of us grew up that way. And most of our parents grew up that way. Even people like me that, you know, we grew up homesteading. We had a garden. My grandmother pickled and canned. It was still, you know, a, a bi-weekly trip to the grocery store. We shot a lot of our own meat, but we, 
We certainly, even when we butchered a deer, the majority of the time we did is we cut it up into cuts, we wrapped it up in butcher paper, we labeled it, we dated it, and what we do is stuck it in a deep freezer. And a lot of these ethnic dishes harken back to a time where these countries developed modern technology today that rivals our own in many instances. The, 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 the technology of, of South Korea and, 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 and other Asian nations today is in many ways beyond what we have for the average person. But the people that lived when it didn't exist are still there, and the, the people of these countries are very much concerned with preserving these methods And so a lot of the ingredients are from a time that even 50, 60 years ago, you didn't have refrigeration. So they have a lot of value to us as preppers, and they have fantastic taste. And I, I second what Keith said about going out to eat, because yesterday Dorothy and I had to go out and look for some stuff that she was interested in. We had to drop the Toyota off to get some work done on it. Uh, so I followed her in the truck, and we decided, let's, let's have dinner while we're out. We found a place called Lone Star Oyster Bar. And I thought, the hell with it. I'm going to have fried food. So I ordered this fried food thing. And she likes uh, crab cakes. So she had crab cakes. I think she had a glass of wine. And I had a thing of you know unsweet tea. It sucked. I mean, there's no way around it. I had double crab. There wasn't any crab in it. There was a couple little pieces of fake crab in it. And our bill was $57. Do you know how many amazing crab cakes I can make for $57? Good old-fashioned Maryland-style crab cakes like we were promised and didn't get. Now, I'm sure Lone Star Oyster Bar, if you go there and you got oysters on the half shell, which is what I was thinking about doing and should have, it's hard, hard, kind of hard to mess that up. But the actually cooked food there, it sucked. It blew. I mean, the fried shrimp was okay. Everything else sucked. We were unhappy, and we were sad because we went in. We're like, we've never been. New place. We come here once in a while. Nice environment. Good service. Crabby food. And all it left me wishing is, why didn't we go by the store, pick up some canned crab meat, some fresh lump crab meat, and why didn't we go home, and why didn't I make that? So become a great cook. It'll save you money. Next up, on saving money, uh, I got a question for John Pugliano on double E savings bonds. These are like the stuff like your grandma used to buy for you on your birthday and give you one every year and what have you. And we've got a listener that's holding on to some that are like 30 years old, wants to know what to do with them. John Pugliano, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. We have a question from Dave in New Hampshire. And Dave has a question about series double E savings bonds. You see, when Dave was a kid, his grandparents were very thoughtful, and on his birthday and Christmas and things like that, they gave him small denomination Series E savings bonds. Now, Dave has held on to those bonds, and since he's turning 30 this year, some of them are going to start to mature now through the next, you know, 14, 15 years. Now, Dave, I'm sure like many of you, is, is apprehensive about the uncertainties of government policies and you know what's going on with our financial system. And so his question is, is there a better way to store this chunk of wealth so that it's available when I need it? And Dave, let me tell you, the short answer I have for you is no. And the answer I'm giving you is no different than what I've told my adult children who are pretty much in the same situation as you. They're holding on to the series double E savings bonds that they received as children as gifts. You know, they're holding them on all the way through full maturity. Let me tell you why I think that makes sense. In your case, these bonds have already exceeded their face value. So, for example, in 1988, when your grandparents bought you a bond, they only paid, say, $25 for it, but it had a face value of $50. Well, all the bonds that you now hold have already exceeded that face value, 
and they continue to grow and collect interest until they reach the full maturity after 30 years. Now, the beauty of the bonds that you hold is that those that were issued prior to 1995 are paying an interest rate of 4%. That's an amazing rate of return. Just to give you an example, Dave, had you been investing in the S&P 500 with, you know, a buy and hold strategy, over the past 16 years, the rate of return from owning the S&P 500 since about the year 2000 would barely be a 4% return, and that includes dividends. And so if you had your money in the stock market, you'd be earning about the same rate of return, but you would have all the risk of the ups and down turmoil of being in the market. And then you'd also be paying taxes every year on the dividends that the uh, stocks were throwing off to you. So in your case, on about half of the bonds that you hold, you're receiving a 4% guaranteed rate of return with absolutely no risk. So don't take that rate of return lightly and be very thankful that your grandparents not only had the foresight to buy those for you many years ago, but also that you had the discipline to hold on to them these years and have not sold them off. And the reason this is important is because we are now in an extremely low interest rate environment. So for those bonds that you're holding that are paying 4%, and even for the ones that are paying less than that, those that you have that are, say, maybe only paying 1.3%, that's still substantially more than you're going to receive if you have that money in a checking account or in a savings account at a bank. It's certainly more than you're going to receive even if it's in a uh, certificate of deposit that, that uh, maybe you've laddered and you've got to keep for six months or two years. And then obviously if you have cash that's just you know under your mattress at home, that's not earning any interest at all. So what you want to do is you want to think about these bonds as if they are actual cash, if they are actual Federal Reserve notes, because you've held them long enough where there's no penalty for redemption, and from a redemption standpoint, they're extremely liquid. Now, they're not as liquid as the $10 bill you have in your wallet, but they are more liquid than the paycheck that you're receiving from your employer. Any day of the week that the bank is open, you can take those series double E's down to your local bank. And as long as you have proper ID, the bank will redeem those without a second thought because they know that they're backed up by the federal government. They don't carry the same risk as something like a paycheck would or some other type of third-party check or, for that matter, even a money order. So when it comes to liquidity, a series E double bond is virtually the same thing as having Federal Reserve notes. Now, you can't go down and put it in a vending machine and get a Coke or a candy bar with it, but it will be fully redeemable at any bank or credit union. So to get back to your original question of is there a better way to store this wealth where it's you know going to be available when you need it, and the answer is really no. You see, if you just had this in Federal Reserve notes, it's going to be a little more available, it's going to be a little more liquid, but you'd be earning absolutely nothing in the form of interest. And again, if it's at the bank or a credit union, if it's in a checking account or savings account, well, then it's really no more liquid than these bonds because you still have to go down to the bank to get it out or write a check and get that cashed. You have bonds in your portfolio that are going to pay you a 4% guaranteed annual rate of return till almost the year 2025. If I were in your situation, that would be the last money that I would spend. Because in the current interest rate environment that we're in, you're still earning a higher rate of return than what's being eaten up by inflation. Think of it this way. Let's just say that you had $10,000 saved up. You know, $5,000 of it was in these series double E savings bonds that 
were coming due over the next, you know, 10 or 15 years, some of them paying as much as 4% interest. As we discussed, this is very liquid. You can go out and cash those in any business day of the week and get your $5,000. Now, in my example, the other amount of money that you have saved up is $5,000 in cash. You may have that in a checking account or a bank account or whatever, you know, stored under your mattress at home. As you incur expenses and you start to draw money out of your savings, you know, maybe you need new tires for your car or you need to buy new tools to make you more productive in your business or you're going to take a vacation or whatever it is you're going to spend. The money that you want to spend first, you want to take out of that $5,000 that's in cash because you're not getting any type of a rate of return on it. So you'd want to burn through that first. This money that you have in these savings bonds, personally, I wouldn't cash them in until the day they mature and absolutely for sure on those ones that are paying 4% interest. In fact, Dave, I'm not telling you to do anything I'm not doing for myself. As I record this, I'm looking at a Series EE savings bond that I own that was purchased back in 1992. It has a $1,000 face value to it. It doesn't mature until the year 2022. It was originally purchased for $500. Today, its redemption value is over $1,600. I'm getting 4% every year that I hold it. I'm not going to get rid of it unless interest rates go up substantially. I'm not cashing this in one day before I have to in the year 2022. But the money is there. It's in reserve. It's part of my long-term savings plan, and I could cash out of it whenever I need to. And so, Dave, in your case, over these next 14 or so years, I would treat these savings bonds as cash reserves, and until interest rates go up significantly, they would be the last reserves that I spend. Now, I want to finish up on this note. The conversation that I'm having with Dave is very situational, and it's based on the fact that he already owns these bonds. This was over a period of time when we saw in the late 70s and early 80s the highest historic interest rates our country has ever had. They've continued to come down into today's environment where we have historically the lowest interest rates we've ever encountered. Since interest rates have been declining for about 30 years, the bonds that Dave holds have done a fairly good job of keeping up with the rate of inflation and thus preserving the purchasing power of the money that was originally invested by his grandparents. Now, I don't think that's the case today. Again, because we're in such low historic rates, one can only assume that over the next 15 to 30 years, rates will most likely be higher than they are today. And so long term, I don't think bonds are necessarily a good investment, certainly not as good of an investment as they would have been in the 1980s. So if I were a grandparent today, and I hope to be here in the near future, hint, hint, any of my married children that might be listening in to TSP, well, as a grandparent today, I would not be purchasing Series E bonds for my grandchildren. Now, you've heard Jack say many times that he gives his grandson a silver coin. Well, I'm not someone that considers myself a gold bug or someone that's enamorated with precious metals, but I got to tell you, in the low interest rate environment that we're in today, I think giving a grandchild a silver coin is a pretty good way to preserve wealth over the next 30 years. Thanks for your question. If you like my opinion on other matters of building wealth or my commentary in the stock market, be sure and check out the Wealthsteading podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. So here's my little addition to this. Over the next few years, you may in fact see, as long as we don't go into real economic downturn, which I, I think we are in for some sort of 
bump-in-the-road recession that's kind of short duration, actually, before another period of like trying to stabilize everything. You, and the Fed's already talking about raising rates. I believe that if you get into a point where you have bond rates, guaranteed rates of return on bonds of 4 to 5%, it's a good place to park some of your money, and it's a good place to do what uh, the listener's uh, grandmother did. right? And what my grandmother did when I was a kid, uh, I, there were interest rates on bonds that were paying you know, 6% at times. And those are good guaranteed rates of return. And I second what John says about a bond once it reaches maturity. It's as liquid as a bank account savings. Okay, it's just as liquid. You still have to go down there and get the money or what have you. Okay, so and, and once it's hit maturity, it's not like it's an auto renews or something like that, like a CD where you're locked in for another term. If you get the types of bonds that we're talking about, these are consumer level bonds that an old lady goes into a bank and says, "I'd like a twenty-five dollar bond for my grandson." Right? This is what we're talking about. Today, I wouldn't touch one with a ten-foot pole as a new buy. So I completely agree with John. And for right now. I don't know of a better investment for long-term, low-cost than an ounce of silver for kids. If I did, I would tell you what it is. I, I really don't. Uh, I guess one option, and this is something that my in-laws did for my son Matthew, is they bought stocks with what's called a drip program or dividend reinvestment program where you don't use a broker or anything, and they bought stock in like McDonald's and Exxon. I'm not saying those are the places to do today, but by just sitting there, and I think they put $800 a piece in each of them, they did very well over you know a long period of time. Not saying you should do that. I'm saying that is another option if you have a larger sum of money. But I think when we take... And we pick up a couple coins here and there and birthdays and just special days and, you know, holidays. And like I said, with, with my grandson, we got him this really cool chest. It's like his treasure chest. And when you give them, them they go in there. Um, that's That has a value and it makes them less likely to think, you know what, I'm going to go party when I'm 18 with this money. It, it has a connection and it teaches them about real wealth. One of my listeners wrote it and it told me something really cool. And I'm thinking about like once I, because I need to get a really nice little wood shop set up. And maybe I need to do this too instead of just what we found to buy them off the shelf. He built for both of his kids a custom made box and made it look old, like beat it with a chain and stuff and distressed and all. So it's not just that it's holding their little treasure, it's also something that their father built for them. And I think that's really, really awesome and something some of you guys might look at. And some of you guys out there are thinking of like a business. How badass would it be that that's what you build? Like, many of you have enough woodworking skills right now. You could build something better. And when we went to find something, it was all junk. It was all garbage. We ordered one from um, Amazon. We shipped it back. It was a piece of crap. We finally went to, I think, either MJ Designs or, or Hobby Lobby or something. And we found one, like, and it's the one he has now. I'm like, it's good enough. It looks kind of old. It's got some leather on it and some hasp and all. But what if you just built treasure chests for kids? You come up with a couple different sizes and designs, a couple different stain options, and you marketed it this way. And maybe you formed a relationship with a provider of silver and gold that for every customer you send them on some kind of thing that they kick you a couple bucks or something like that as an extra passive source of income. I'm not saying you can make a fortune selling treasure boxes for kids for this purpose, but you certainly could develop a customer base, and what could you do next? That's up to you. That's about value. Now, on value, my ending segment for you today, I, was, I did a show this week on guns, and I think people really, really liked it. And um, I got a comment 
for a gun that I've never heard of before. It's called an Escort Aim Guard Pump Shotgun. And it seems like most of them for sale on Gunbroker are more like the tactical 18-inch barreled cylinder bore. Uh, but they seem like a decent shotgun for what they are. And uh, they're selling for under 200 bucks new. Uh, the list price on them is in the range of, you know, 200 to $300, depending on the options. Uh, but they have a kind of the tactical version, pump shotgun, 12-gauge, being sold by Academy Sports and Outdoor Retail, $179.99. Uh, these guns are made in Turkey, and they're fairly well made. Well, the, 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 the gun that I found that I think is really a value, and one thing the Turkish gun manufacturers do is a good job with wood, and both of the guns I really want to talk about today are wood stock. The Escort Magnum 20-gauge semi-auto shotgun and the Export, Export Escort Magnum 12-gauge semi-auto shotguns retail for $449, bucks. These are good-looking guns, and the reviews I read on them, they seem to be very good functional guns. They, they, they advance well, they don't jam, and you want me to tell you the truth? It looks like a Remington 1100 clone. It looks like they built, you know, it's not exactly an 1100, but it looks a damn bit like an old Remington 1100. And what do you ask is the retail on a comparable Remington 1100? It's like 1600 bucks. And it's, it's a much nicer looking gun if you go to that level. But if you drop down to the 1187, which is basically the kind of the stock version of the 1100, and it, it's nowhere near as pretty a gun as the, um, as the Escort semi-auto, you're still looking at over $800 retail. So you're, you're looking at about half. And it's a damn good looking gun. Um, damn well made from the reviews I've read. So it's something if you're looking for an auto-loading shotgun, especially, you know, a walnut stock, something that looks nice, uh, in either 10 or, or 10, I'm sorry, 12 or 20 gauge, you might want to look at. Now, the other one that I found that I'm, I'm kind of blown away with the quality of this shotgun. Um, and, and the beauty of the woodwork on it. And I would expect nothing less from this company. But it's made by Weatherby. You know, Weatherby, who makes some of the finest, most expensive rifles on the planet, uh, with some of the most innovative rounds ever created by Roy Weatherby, has a pump shotgun called the PA08 Upland uh, sh Shotgun. Retails. Now, this is his street price. This is MSRP retail, 449 uh, they make it in 12 and 20 gauge. They make a compact version of it uh, with an inch shorter stock and a 24-inch barrel. Um, and, frankly, I'd really like that barrel on the on the full length of pull. Um, they, they all retail for about 450 bucks. Now, if Weatherby puts their name on something, it's quality. And it is a, it is a good-looking gun. If I was in the market for a new pump shotgun right now, and I was between this gun and the Remington 870 Wingmaster, uh, which I love, I think I'd go with this Weatherby. It's interchangeable chokes, uh, lots of options, and again, Weatherby's quality and just the checkering alone on this is, is really nice. So those of you that are looking to, uh, to get into wing shooting or shooting clays or something like that, that want a pump or a semi-auto, there's a couple options for you there. Uh, that you might not have known about otherwise. Last but not least, I'm going to throw in, you know, uh, making my uh, little pitch for the MSB toward the end of the show. So if you like this show, if you think it was worth uh, 18.5 cents, which is about what it comes out to an episode, to become an MSB member, do consider joining the MSB. Just go to the survival 
www.ltpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more. And remember, if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, you do get a discount to thank you for your service. Just email me before, not after you join. Send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com and put a TSPC service discount in the subject line. When you email me about anything you expect to hear back from, if you don't hear back in a day or two, assume it went into the spam monster and re-email me or that I somehow just overlooked it because it does happen as busy as I am. That brings us to my uh, closing thoughts today and the song of the day. The song that I have for you today is a new song. Way I usually play stuff that's 20, 30 years old. This song's relatively new. I'm not sure how new, but like it's the last five years or less. It's by a modern band called Zach Brown Band. And I love the Zach Brown Band. I love their sound. I love their harmonies. I love their music. And I love who they are. So Zach Brown and his band, and a cook, a cook that they have is full-time, actually have parties for their, their fans before every show. And the, even though they have like a full-time cook to manage all this stuff, they get in there and they cook for their people. And as those of you that have come here know, I cook for my folks, so I kind of dig that, that as big as they are, because I am a tiny mouse fart in the wind compared to how big these guys are as, uh, as country music rock stars. Um, but that's not why I chose this song today. The song is called Toes. Got my toes in the water, my ass in the sand. And the, the concept is a guy heads on down to Mexico and just gets away from everything and has this great four-day weekend parties, drinks, hangs out in bars, you know, flirts with a cute bartender and parties, man. And it's just, and thinking I'm never going back. The reality sets in and he has to go back and he goes back to his place in Georgia and he realizes that that type of escape is something that can be acquired right where he lives. It's not really about geography. It's about attitude. Or as Jimmy Buffett would say, changes in latitudes, changes in attitudes. Like the, the changing of your latitude can change your attitude, right? That's Jimmy's point. But possibly we can change our own attitudes and we can find joy in what we're doing. And just like Sue and Michael were talking about with adventure, adventure doesn't always have to be expensive. Adventure doesn't always have to be on an airplane. So my challenge for you this weekend as you listen to this song closing up today's show is what can you do this weekend to have a blast right where you are in your own backyard? Whether it's the adventure of planning something new or taking a walk through a nature center or just going to see something awesome and taking your kids with you or if you don't have kids yet or they're already gone, doing it with your, your, your partner or doing it alone. What adventure can you create for yourself this week versus wishing you could be somewhere else? And with that, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Got my toes in the water, ass in the sand Not a worry in the world, a cold beer in my hand Life is good today, life is good today Well, a plane touched down just about three o'clock And the city's still on my mind Bikinis and palm trees danced in my head I was still in the baggage line Concrete cars with their own prison bars like this life I'm living in. But the plane brought me farther, I'm surrounded by water and I'm not going back again. I got my toes in the water, ass in the sand, not a worry in the world, a cold beer in my hand. Life is good today, life is good today.
senoritas I'd have no reason to stay Adios and vaya conmigo Yeah, I'm leaving GA Gonna lay in the hot sun And roll a big fat one And, and grab my guitar and play From the islands, her body's been kissed by the sun. And coconut replaces the smell of the bar, and I don't know if it's her or the wrong. I got my toes in the water, ass in the sand, not a worry in a world of cold beer in my hand. Life is good today. Life is good today. When I throw pesos that way Adios and vaya con Dios A long way from GA Someone do me a favor And pour me some Jaeger And I'll grab my guitar and play in a lawn chair, toes in the clay, not a worry in a world of PBR on the way, life is good today, life is good today.